I recently read an illustration about a heavy snowfall that stranded a young boy in the home of a friend after school. Maybe you grew up in an area where snowfall was that heavy. Uh, in Florida, we didn't have such as that. The problem is that the boy couldn't get home until his father left the comforts of his warm abode and with his strong shoulders and legs breaks uh, the way through the feet of snow to clear the path to help the boy come home. And the boy then follows him in his, follows in his, follows in his father's footsteps and yet walks in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in this unique way. You see, the father in that situation is not merely his teacher or example, or otherwise the boy would have to break his own way through the snow. You know, he's not only copying the action of the, not only copying the action of the father. It's not a vicarious act of the father. Otherwise, the the boy would just remain in the warm room of his friend and think that his father would go home and, instead of himself. You no, know, the father had to blaze the trail and pathway home for the boy and lead him home on the right path to get through that feet of snow. You know, it's been observed that before the time of Christ, there were two types of messianic expectations, expectation among the Jews. According to one type, the Messiah was to be a, a king of David's line. And according to the other, he was to be a heavenly being suddenly appearing in the clouds of heaven to judge the world. Both of these types of later Jewish expectation are rooted in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament represents the Messiah as both as a king of David's line and also a supernatural person to appear with the clouds of heaven. And in the New Testament, we find these two types of promise of an expectation of the Messiah united in the fulfillment in the same person. How is it that one person can, on the one hand, be a man, a king of David's line, at the same time be the mighty God? The New Testament answers this most wonderfully in the great central doctrine of the deity and humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's this wonderful continuity between the Old and New Testaments. The New Testament authors always write of the same God who revealed himself in the Old Testament writings as the same one who's revealing himself in the New Testament. And this morning's chapter in the New Testament, let's take our Bible and open to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. It helps us see, see this particular coming together of these expectations of this promised one who alone can make the way home for, un, uh, unto God for his people. And so, as you're looking with me at God's word, I want to ask you, ask every one of you, are you on the path that leads to eternal life, or do you think you yourself will trailblaze that and make it on, there on your own, on your own efforts and righteousness? Mark is holding out to us the one who has come to make truly prepare the way, declare the way, who is the way, the truth and the life, unto fellowship with the triune God and to eternal life. Mark chapter 1, we're going to look at Mark's gospel, chapter 1. And as I did last week, I'm going to read uh, all of chapter 1 here. 
excuse me, chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. That's where I'm going to read. Let's look there at the first verse. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. This is God's holy word. Amen. Mark does not want to waste time. He wants to make clear how Jesus is the true trailblazer, the way to be with God. In verses 1 through 3, Jesus is the promised king and servant that the Old Testament promised who would come to save and lead home all God's true people. In verses 4 through 8, John the Baptist, while reenacting Israel's first exodus, proclaims a better and truer exodus that will be led by the true baptizer, Jesus. He, in a great work, will pour out living water, spiritually washing and creating a truer Israel by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this section communicates to the readers that Jesus came, that we're in this morning, verses 9 through 13, to identify himself with man while at the same time be identified as God's son. So this section identifies Jesus as the promised servant king who came to defeat God's ultimate enemy. And so that's how Mark is framing this up for us this morning as we study. And all of this information reveals to the reader that Israel and the world are hopeless unless God comes down to serve and save. So Christian, as you listen to this morning, listening to the sermon this morning, just know this, you need this passage. You need to be encouraged today that not only in your, hope, in your most hopeless point, God has come to encourage and save and redeem you, but that this one, this Savior, this Jesus, is more glorious uh, than, you, uh, than, you, than he was when you first came in today. I pray that, that you'll see that this text will make him more wonderful, more precious in your eyes and in your heart as you study the word with me today. And to those who are listening who are not a Christian, this text 
is, is critical for you. If you don't know the Lord, this is so important that you listen today. Because whether you know it or feel it, don't, don't be fooled by feelings. Feelings come and go. The bottom line is we are all hopeless sinners without God's intervention through Christ the Son. And Mark wants to get right to the point. He wants to hit, hit us square between the eyes. This is the one and only Savior. Mark's message is repent and believe the good news. Turn from your sins, trust in Christ. This is part, this morning I'm on part three of the, that uh, this, this series is titled Repent and Believe the Good News Because the Son prepares the way. Part three this morning, by serving as the true liberator of God's people. By serving as the true liberator of God's people. That's the sermon title. But here's the, here's the central point of the sermon, if you're taking notes. We are hopeless unless God comes down to save us. We are hopeless unless God comes down to save us. It reminds you of the Psalms and uh, 15 and 16. Who, who can ascend your holy mountain? It's none of us fulfill that. We are all, we are hopeless unless God comes down to save us. Therefore, put your hope in Jesus Christ alone. I have three points. I, they all start with C this morning, so they'll be easy to remember. Point one, condescension. Point two, commission. Point three, confirmation. Condescension, commission, confirmation. The Lord help us now as we consider our Savior and be all the more encouraged to put our trust in Him. Point number one, condescension. He identified with us. He identified with us. And looking specifically at verse 9. And there's don't, don't let the shortness of the verse fool you. There's a lot to think on here as we read it to look at it together. He identified with us. Well, why? Why did he do it? Here's the subpoints right here. We need help. We need help to come down. We need help to go up. And we need help with our sin debt. We need help to come down. We need help to go up. And we need help with our sin debt. We need help to come down to us. First subpoint. Verse 9 is, is actually more dramatic than the first glancing read. The NIV says, at that time. Don't be fooled by that. A better rendering for literary study is to translate it as, it came to pass in those days. Some of your translations say that. It came to pass in those days. It came to pass in those days. This is a phrase that has a scriptural ring to it. In those days. Uh, in, it came to pass in those days. It is, is a, an arresting statement. Think of the early days when Adam, there in the garden, all he knew in those days were health, happiness, and holiness. But he fell and sin entered the world. Then too were the days of Noah. He by grace was triumphant over awesome waves and turbulent waters. But it was a sad triumph, after all, because all, all about him the world was being torn apart under the wrath of a holy God. And Noah himself fell short. 
Well, there was the days of Abraham where he packed up and left for the promised land. He nearly lost it all in Egypt. He nearly lost it all with Hagar. He nearly lost it to a Philistine king. Abraham had feet of clay. Then there were the days when Moses was called to humble Egypt. To bring two or three million people out of bondage and bound for Canaan. But the people were largely rebellious. And in Moses, in his own disobedience against God, kept, it kept him at the edge of the promised land. There were the days, those days of David, King David, crowned with glory and honor. But that was before he met Bathsheba, before he had to write his tear-drenched penitential psalms. In all of those days, it's vanity to look for a perfect man who was truly able to do battle with the forces of darkness. So it was that those days of which these specific days that now Mark wants to tell you and I about. In those days, the fullness of that time had come. And God sent forth his son made of a woman under the law. He grew up in obscurity until the day of his showing to Israel. You feel the drama there? These days. It was during this, at this time. It came to pass in those days. We need help to come down to us. But we need help from the bottom up. We need help from the bottom up. Based on Mark's words, one might expect a more eye-catching appearance for the greater successor to John, but look close at verse 9. Jesus appeared as unpowerful as a powerful one could get. One might also assume that the Messiah, the Son of God, would, would, would cut a more imposing figure who would immediately capture the attention of the crowds. But instead, the Messiah, the one who comes from, we'll just call it Nowheresville in rustic Galilee, seems indistinguishable from the rest of the crowds. He does not come with some special aura or halo okay, over him. Look at the scene. The Son of God who came to the world, having put on full humanity, arrives to serve from the humblest background. Mark tells us that Jesus comes from Nazareth. Note there that he is the only one mentioned as coming to John. Look at the text, from Galilee. Everyone else was coming from the city. You saw that? And look at the sharp contrast here between he and the urban socialites who come from the city. Jesus comes from a town that, that did not even write a mention in the Old Testament. I mean, I'm from, I'm from, I'm from one of those kind of towns. But this must, Nazareth was even smaller where I come from, friends. The story will unfold this, this contrast further. Many go out, but only one understands what it all means. Nazareth, from the Hebrew term netzer, meaning branch. Many of you recognize that, don't you? Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. God told Israel they would be cut down like a plant, 
But God would come one day to form a better and faithful Israel. And Isaiah said that the true servant Messiah would be a sucker branch here, reflects the, reflecting the fact that Jesus' beginning seemed irrelevant, insignificant, totally unpromising. He was not someone whom the a typical observer might expect to grow into the role of Messiah. And so, as you would imagine, from the viewpoint of most in Israel, including those in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus was merely a young plant, a root out of dry ground, just like God said he would be. He wasn't just any old upcoming person from nowhere. He was the branch, the promised one, the true vine, the conduit of blessing between God and man, the faithful son, the rightful heir to all the earth. And to paraphrase Mark chapter 6, to make it clear, the people in Nazareth, how they missed it, they essentially asked him, where did this nobody, this sucker branch, this unpromising, useless root out of dry ground get these things? We, we need a servant who comes from the bottom up. We also need help with our sin debt. See, all of these things are showing us how the Lord has condescended to help and serve any and all who'd ever turn from their sins and trust in him. Verse 9 reveals that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why? Mark sets it up here to see this is the beginning of Jesus' humiliation. Make no mistake about it, friends. This was, this was humiliating for the Son of God to be identified here with sinners because he had no sin. Jesus faithfully begins his humiliation right here. Furthermore, he submits to the Father's will and willingly identifies himself with sinful humanity here. So let's tie together the imagery of the text. Jesus is out there in the desert wilderness being baptized by John in the Jordan River. In the Old Testament, the wilderness was not only God's staging grounds for the end goal of victory, it was also God's proving grounds for, the, for testing the people. And the Jordan River represented, as I said last week, the border between the desert and the promised land. So the imagery evokes Take yourself out of your own American experience. Put yourself in the original audience experience of reading this as best as you can. This imagery evokes the expectation that God is about to liberate Israel again. And Mark emphasizes that God now acts through his beloved son. Passing through the waters of the promise again, a new, forgiven, cleansed Israel would emerge when Jesus comes to John for baptism, therefore he's consenting to this calling of Israel. He's not seeking salvation for himself or fleeing the wrath to come. Rather, he is joining in the renewal of Israel and in the march of God's unfolding purpose for the world. Friends, let's tie it up here quickly. Like Moses who gave up his regal status in Egypt to identify with his people to deliver them, Far greater, Jesus humbles himself by entering the ranks of sinners and taking his stand with them, just as later he will die for them, isolated and alone. His baptism, therefore, launches him on the servant road of obedience, which ultimately leads to obedience to the cross, where he will die and suffer for the sins of any and all who repent and believe. 
It is no more odd for Jesus to be baptized in the Jordan than it is for him to hang on the cross at Calvary as the sinless and spotless Son of God. Even though he he never sinned, he comes to take on the sign passing through the waters of judgment in baptism. Jesus, who was fully equal with God in every way, who was the very form of God, did not see that as something to keep in his grasp, but emptied himself of that equal status and role to take the status and role of humanity. He took on the form of the servant, the servant. Oh, when you read and I read Mark, we need to read this. In those few verses, such condescension, such imagery of what Jesus is, such humiliation that he's going through here. God is doing this out of love for sinners and for his own glory. He did not set himself apart from our sins, folks, but to take them on himself at Calvary and pay them in full so that we could be forgiven once and for all. Friends, doesn't his presence here, just the presence of God in the flesh, Christ, the Son of God, doesn't his presence run contrary to the idea that we are somehow worthy of salvation? No, he's the one that's worthy of all glory and honor. Shouldn't his presence here in this scene awaken the person who lives in unrepentant sin? Living in unrepentant sin, sins like greed and malice and sexual immorality and drunkenness and gossip and covetousness and violence to see how far God has come to help them and to help you and me. Jesus came to identify with sinners who don't see their need for him and who take his grace for granted. Christian friend. Are you amazed at all the ways God has come down to love you and I? How will his life, his condescending, humiliating life, transform your approach to lowering yourself to serve, to serve others, to serve those who are ungrateful? Are we not freshly instructed about humility when we stare at how the king of glory condescended from heaven, became a man, lived in the poorest of nowheres, and came to serve a bunch of grumbling, self-righteous, arrogant, lustful, unteachable, and hard-headed folks like you and me. It wasn't, oh, we're so lovely, so easy to love. No, that's what makes God's amazing love amazing, is that he came to save sinners. Jesus is already changing our ideas, <laughs> our, our views of patience and grace just by arriving, just by putting himself through here at baptism. He put aside his glory and puts on service. That's not natural to us, is it? That's not of our fleshly ways, our sinful impulse. But make no mistake about it. Every one of us have to humble ourselves and, and receive the humble service of Jesus. Are you above being served by Jesus? Then you cannot know eternal life. Are you above Jesus in some way that you can't be called upon to serve in your, in your home, your church, your neighborhood? Well, then you're not living as one who, profe- who professes life eternal in Christ. 
Are we going to claim that somehow we have endured more than Jesus and that God owes us something other than judgment for our willful rebellion against him? Jesus was, at this baptism, numbered with the transgressors. Remember Isaiah said he would be numbered with the transgressors. You're seeing it unfold right here in Mark's gospel. But here's the thing. He was numbered with the transgressors. Here's the question you should ask yourself. Will I be among his number? Will I follow him? Go to Christ. Turn from your sins. Put your trust only in his person and work and in his resurrection. We are hopeless unless God comes down to save us. Therefore, put your hope in Jesus Christ alone. Condescension. He came to identify with us. Let's go to point two. Commissioned. He was anointed for us. He was anointed for us. You know, we're thinking about that snowpath. As I thought, started off this morning. This morning, it, it's going to be messy, but the trailblazer, he gets up, he comes down to our aid, and clearly Jesus is identified as that one who will make the way, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, commissioned, he was anointed for us. There are two subpoints here. We're going to think about a clear path and fellowship. Clear path and fellowship. Let me elaborate. He was anointed for us to what? To show us a clear path home to God. To show us a clear path home to God. Look at the scene there in verse 10. Look at the scene again in verse 10. In the desert, by the Jordan River, the heavens, look at the text, are torn open. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters and void of the desert, lighting upon Jesus like a dove. Don't miss that. There are not only three names, but three actors on the scene here. There is the Father who speaks. This is my beloved Son. This is, you are my Son. My, the one I am, he's Jesus, the Father speaks. And then the beloved Son who is baptized. And then and the Spirit, the dove who hovers above Jesus as he did above the waters in creation. Mark does not use the word Open, look at the text again, verse 10. He does not use the, 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 the term open as some translator, translations render it. Instead, he describes the heavens are torn, schizo. You hear that term? As one might imagine, a, like a bolt of lightning tearing its fabric. The same term to describe the tearing of the, the, the veil of the temple. It's the same term. The heavens are open and God is coming to us. Later on, the veil is torn, showing access is open to God through the Son. It's that same term, torn. And isn't it interesting that what is opened may be closed, however, what is ripped cannot easily return to its former state. I think this term is deliberate here. That there's a, There is something happening that, that's going to change everything. There's no undoing it. There's no putting it back in the bottle. This is this is going to change everything. The heavens are torn open. When Jesus comes out of the water, Mark tells us that heaven breaks loose. We're getting this as the readers, aren't we? The barriers are torn down and torn open, and God is now in the midst and on the loose. And that's why I read to you from Isaiah 64. 
because that was the heart of Isaiah 64. One, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and that the mountains would tremble before you. Has come to pass. The heavens have been rent open. Salvation is here. Mark wants us to see that the author of creation is also the author of redemption. All things come from the Father, in the Son, by the Spirit. The Spirit who hovered over the depths in creation, calling a world out of nothing. Remember this from Luke chapter 1? Will come upon you, the angels told Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The hovering of God's Spirit on Jesus like a dove was a sign that this new creation a new creation was starting, was breaking forward. The appearing of the dove announced the appearance. Think, think about it, when you see the dove, many of you immediately thought of the book of Genesis, the hovering of God's spirit on Jesus like a dove. You remember that in Genesis chapter 8, the appearing of the dove announced the appearance of dry land to Noah. I'll say that again. The appearing, appearing of the dove announced the appearance of the dry land. And guess who parted the waters? Who's the breath that breathed? That parted those waters? The Holy Spirit. The appearance of the Spirit announces the appearance of salvation to all readers here. The waters of judgment are being divided. A clear path across the real Jordan is being blazed. The one chosen and anointed for this task is greater than Moses, and he is here. Spirit hovers over a human being here, not over a wilderness, suggesting that God intends to transform all, transform all human beings who put their trust in Messiah. In Isaiah 61, the servant of the Lord brings about an everlasting year of jubilee. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, which Jesus says is fulfilled in your hearing right here in me. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So there we're thinking about there. So just show us a clear path home to God. When you see the work of the Holy Spirit working right there upon Jesus, you think about this, a clear path is being It's being being blown. It's being made. Salvation is coming. But also, second sub-point, to fellowship, to bring us into fellowship with the triune God. To bring us into fellowship with the triune God. He decrees Jesus as the Son. Verse 11, "A a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Mark does something here that's, incredible I think we're just kind of used to certain readings of the New Testament but when we stare at it for a while it just becomes more and more wonderful he ascribes to Jesus what was once ascribed to Israel you are my son meaning you are my chosen agent and particularly Jesus the Christ is the chosen agent to image the father he is the image of the invisible God He is the perfect image bearer. Israel failed. Adam failed. But Jesus will not fail. And the title son was also used 
by the way, of a greater son of King David to come. We see that expectation of this mighty king to come in Psalm 2, Isaiah 42. You're looking at the one who is the true image bearer. I mean, let's go back to the, ba- the basis, most foundational thing in the Bible, just thinking about Adam. You're looking at the second true Adam right here, Israel and David, the one who through his perfect work will subdue the earth. But first he must satisfy the just demands of God on behalf of his people. You're looking at the real image bearer, the one who's really going to bring blessing, the seed of Abraham who will bless the nations. When God said to when God when when God is said to say here well pleased or expressing good pleasure refers to God's he's referring to referring to God's inscrutable decree reflects God's divine choice his anointing of Christ Jesus did not become by the way the son of God because he had divine approval he had the divine approval because he's always been the son of God you understand the difference. Jesus did not become the son of God because he had divine approval. He had the divine approval because he's always been the son of God. And the Bible does not present Jesus nearly as an example for faith, but presents him as the object of faith. The faith that saves people according to the Bible, according to Mark's gospel, is trust faith in Jesus Christ for salvation because he is God. To put your faith in Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, is to put your trust in God, because he is God. Notice also he reveals the triune God at work. Mark is deliberately pointing us back to the creation, to the very beginning of history. So just as the original creation of the world was the work of the triune God, Mark says, so the redemption of the world, the rescue and renewal of all things that is beginning now with the arrival of this king is also the work of the triune God. The triune God is at work right here in Mark chapter 1. The Christian teaching of the Trinity is mysterious and honestly cognitively challenging. The doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one God eternally existent in three persons. That's not tritheism with three gods who work in harmony. Neither is it modalism, the notion that God sometimes takes on one form and sometimes takes another, but that, but that these are simply the you know, different manifestations of one God. It's not that. Trinitarianism holds that there is one God in three persons who know and love one another. Can't you see that? The Son's going to live for the glory of the Father. He's going he's to talk, he's gonna, as you read Mark's gospel, he's going to talk to you about the work of the Spirit and honoring him. And the Spirit comes to make much of Christ. It's, it's, it's all over the place. They, the three persons who know and love one another. One God and three persons. And God is not more fundamentally one than he is three, and he's not more fundamentally three than he is one. But that's how the Bible reveals the mystery of God. When Jesus comes out of the water, the Father, look at it, envelops him and covers him with words of love. Meanwhile, the Spirit covers him with power. And this is what's been happening, beloved, in the interior life of the Trinity from all eternity. And Mark is just, we're just finally getting to see a bit of the conversation. We're finally getting brought into the, seeing the, the divine relationship. 
Mark is giving us a glimpse of the, into the very heart of reality, the meaning of life, the essence of the universe. Pastor Garrett, you're saying it's all right here in these first three verses? Yes! You and I are getting a window a, 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 because of revelation in the Word into the triune God. Here's, here is a fundamental application for all. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all centering on each other, adoring and serving. The Father, Son, and Spirit are giving glorifying love to one another. God is infinitely, profoundly happy. He never created because he was lonely. He didn't make us because he needed us. But in love, he, he made us to glorify him and bring us into this fellowship. Think about this. If you, if you, if you find some, someone you love and that they feel the same way about you, well, that feels great, doesn't it? It's sublime, as one author said. That's what God's been enjoying for all eternity. You and I are, let's tie it together, beloved. We are made not just to believe in God or to be spiritual in some general way. We weren't made just to pray and get a little bit of inspiration when things are tough, okay? And there are church services and books that are written that way, that, that paint a relationship with God that way. That we were just made to be spiritual and and, and get a little bit of inspiration, and, and uh, you know, that, that's kind of the end of it. No, we were made to center everything in our lives on God, to think of everything in terms of our relationship to God, to serve God unconditionally. And that, friends, the Bible reveals, is where we find the most joy. That's what life is about, worshiping God. You were made in the image of God, given dignity from our Creator to glorify and worship Him. And your life, many of you, maybe you're not many, some of you here today, maybe you're not a believer. And you've been going about your life your own way, worshiping and treasuring yourself and created things above Creator, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You should ask yourself, how's that going for me? Is it really going to work out like I think it's going to work out? Am I already sensing that this is not why I was made. Until we put this, this front and center that we were created for fellowship with the triune God and to serve him, until we put that front and center, we will continue in paths of disobedience, bad discernment, and more anxiety. We are to center our life on God. When you see this interaction here revealed in the word, you're seeing indescribable almost uh, such intensive glory. We should center our lives on this one. You should know this. God is God-centered and rightly so. He is God. But what about you and me? Your kingdom or his? That's the choice set before us. But let's go, let's zoom back out. We've thought about the Trinity. Let's go back to this anointing here. Doesn't his anointing the, highlight, the anointing of Jesus highlight how even the best of us are still not worthy to atone for our sins, let alone anyone else. Shouldn't his anointing highlight how those living in sin should wake up to the fact that this one is not only our only hope, but he's also the judge. 
So be thankful, friends, for all the ways Jesus is qualified. Rejoice. He is the beloved son. He's qualified to take on the task of saving us from God's justice against our sins. We need to be saved by God from God. And Jesus alone can fulfill that. How will his perfect life keep you from boasting this week or keep you from self-comparison? Jesus is is the standard of righteousness. And here's wonderful news, beloved, to keep in mind when we do sin, when we do fall short as God's people. In the gospel, in the good news that Jesus came to live the life of righteousness we none lived and then die in substitution for our sins and be raised on the third day for our justification, we discover, oh, it gets better. I mean, it's like the gravy just keeps coming, beloved. Uh, We discover that trusting in Christ brings God's full and complete favor and approval. When you put your trust in Christ, you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You're standing in Christ before God. You're justified. When God sees us in Christ, he sings over us. You are my child. With you I am well pleased. And God decrees that about us only in Christ. Me and you. Are you... What better news do you have than that? That he would look on you and say, well, pleased, decreed, justified. What better news do you have than that? And because God is pleased with us, we can live in a way which pleases God. We obey him not for earning points of righteousness. Not to prove that somehow he was right to save us. That's absurd. But out of gratitude to God who we know has already saved us. You love God like that today? Are you trying to do right just so you'll feel better about yourself, prove him right in some way as if you could? Friends, rest in the declaration that is ours in Christ. Then live your life of obedience because you love him, because of all that he did for you and taking on your sin debt as if it were his own, and being judged in your place. Third point, shortest one. We are hopeless unless God comes down to save us. Therefore, put your hope in Jesus Christ alone. We've thought about his condescension. Oh, my goodness. His, he was commissioned for this. None of us could do that. Notice third, point three, confirmation. He was tested for us. Verses 12 and 13. Look at 12 and 13. And Mark's gospel records the shortest about information here. Jesus is confirmed as our only hope as his defeat, as he, by his defeat of the evil one here. The first thing that the anointing spirit of God, look at the text, did was drive the Lord Jesus into the desert. The Lord Jesus would know exile, but he would know it greater at Calvary. But right here, He was driven into the desert where he was held in the grip of intense mental concentration. He was now to engage the devil himself in single combat. And Mark implies that the temptation was continuous. He used the present tense participle speaking of continuous action during that 40-day period. And of course, the 40 days should again, ding, 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 jump off the page to us as readers of the word. Kids, this is why we read all those Old Testament stories. This is why we master the Bible, so that we might see Jesus all the more clearly and give him glory. 
The number recalls the experiences of Moses and Elijah, as well as the 40 years of Israel's temptation in the wilderness. But unlike them, he will be perfectly successful and perfectly righteous. Again, he is the greater son, the greater Adam, the greater Israel, the greater... He's, Jesus is the focus, okay? Now look at the scene. Jesus led by the Spirit right into the fray of battle, into the wilderness, the realm of paradise lost, the place of danger and wild beasts, the realm of Satan, to do what all others failed to do. And so from the opening, by the way, from the opening to the closing pages of Scripture, Satan, the chief of fallen angels who has great power, is presented as an enemy of God and an enemy of God's people that we cannot defeat. And Satan's knowledge, his presence and power are limited because he is a created being, an angelic being. And Satan must now contend with a new Adam. The desert sojourn is, is only the first round, by the way, in Jesus' battle with evil. The battle is not over. The decisive, decisive victory is yet to come. And the confrontation with the foremost of the demonic forces were, will, will therefore extend throughout his ministry. And we're going to see that as we read Mark's gospel. But at the same time, Satan never reappears in the story. And Mark probably intends to, to depict a decisive defeat of the devil right here. Jesus drubs him in single combat. And what ensues, if you, what's amazing is you keep reading Mark's gospel. When he encounters the powers of darkness... What ensues in the story is a mopping up action and the release of Satan's hostages. So make no mistake here. Jesus, being mightier, has come to bind the strong man. The trailblazer is our victor over the evil one. He secures our salvation through his perfect obedience and defeat of death, which is Satan's greatest weapon to keep us condemned forever. Jesus has come to clean house, and, and the forces of darkness know it. John chapter 1, verse 3, John chapter 3, excuse me, 1 John 3, verse 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Friends, Jesus' victory over Satan, by the way, doesn't give us a license to sin, again, as I'm trying to keep us focused here, but a path to follow. You see, we will either choose Satan or Christ. You cannot have two masters. You cannot claim your righteousness. You have to claim Christ's righteousness. There's only one that saves and gives victory over the one who seeks to keep us enslaved to sin. His name is Jesus. And the text also corrects the idea that, it, by the way, this is hopeful for us sinners, right? It, 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 that you've gone too far out of God's reach. Jesus came to defeat the enemy on behalf of the most offensive, hedonist, and on behalf of the most arrogant, self-righteous, and visually moral person. He came to defeat the enemy. So maybe you're here today and you realize that you have boasted too long in your righteousness. Or you're sitting here today and you're under conviction about going in deeper in your sin. The, the news is neither one of you can deliver yourself. You're both under the enslavement of the evil one. Jesus came to defeat him. And he did. Put your trust in Christ. Jesus, be encouraged how he both understands us and 
has our security. Jesus was tempted and tested, and he was victorious. He understands us. We can go to him in prayer and get his help by the Spirit. Well, I better conclude. Friends, how will his testing, his confirmation compel you and I as Christians to stop living such defeated lives and start being strengthened by his word, by the power of the Spirit? The word of God says, greater is he that is in you, Christian, than he that is in the world. And we need to listen to that old adage when the evil one reminds us of our, our past, we need to remind him of his future. The evil one's been defeated by Jesus, just a matter of time. His doom is sure, and our hope is secure. Simply, friends, as we looked at these, these first 13 verses, I, I want to hold out to you, Jesus. I want you to see that there's only one pathway and one trailblazer. His name is Jesus. And his way requires the power of the Spirit. It will encounter encounter spiritual opposition. However, it's going to end in glory. Just as God said it would. Are you on the path that leads to eternal life? Let's pray. Father, we're amazed at your mighty power and works. It's amazing to see how Jesus condescended to serve us, ungrateful ones. It's amazing, Lord, to see that you would bring us into fellowship with you, the triune Lord and God. Lord, it's amazing to see how an enemy that would terrify us in our own strength is no match for our mighty Savior, Jesus. We praise you that Jesus rose in a parade up from the grave. And Lord, it's just a matter of time before evil will be no more. Lord, calls us to walk in such victory. And for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that they would cry out for your grace and mercy to save them before it's too late. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.